0: All right, if you want to turn with me to John chapter four, John chapter four, we read verses one through 10. I'm just glad that my son didn't get his head caught in the, the podium here. Why well, It would make preaching a little difficult because no one would be paying attention to me anymore. Just my son's head stuck in the podium. All right. this, this morning's message is called "Surprised by Grace." We use the word grace a lot at church. We talk about amazing grace and the fact that God gives us grace. We extend grace to others. We study the doctrines of grace. We partake in the sacraments of baptism and communion as a means of grace. In Titus 2, it says the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so we use this word grace quite a bit. And it kind of if you've been in church for any amount of time, surely you've heard this word. So what is grace? What is grace? When we begin to talk about grace, what is it that we're exactly talking about? And this morning I want to look at what that means for us and then look at some examples in the Word of God that point to what God's grace really looks like. And so this morning, we're going to define grace simply as God's goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. So God's grace is simply God's goodness towards those who only deserve punishment. When we think about grace, it's almost completely foreign to the American way of life. I was talking with someone not too long ago, and, and we were talking about sin and the way that God forgives us, and the way that God In his grace, in his kindness, in his mercy to us that is not deserved, yet he gives it to us anyways. And yet God continues to forgive us of our sins when we ask for forgiveness. This person said, that just sounds counterproductive. It doesn't make sense that this this grace has no limit. There should be some kind of limit on grace where, hey, you've screwed up enough. Okay, I'm cutting you off now. We're done. But that's what's amazing about grace. And it's foreign to our way of life. We in America have esteemed the rugged individual, the person who's pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, those who've worked from nothing to make something out of themselves. And then we take those people and say, those are, th- these people are the people we idolize, we find important. The athlete who has grown up in hardship, who's, who's worked so diligently in practicing and preparing their bodies and now is, is great at the sport that they have, We say, those are the people that we really esteem and we want to hear stories about and write books about. But God's grace isn't always like that. God's grace is different from that. And this morning, we're going to look at three people who encountered Jesus. and And in encountering Jesus, they encountered grace. They come from different walks of life, unique stories, but each one is yet a portrait of God's grace. Let's look first at the woman at the well in John 4. This is our first portrait of God's grace. And this is the woman at the well, John 4, 1-10. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I want to fill out kind of the rest of the picture for us in this encounter with the Samaritan woman. Because we can read this and just kind of glance over. It's not that big of a deal anymore for us to talk to other people of different races. Even ask them for a drink of water. Talk to a woman. It's It's not that big of a deal. But I want to just give us a little background, a little history of, of why this is important, why this encounter was, was, was significant. So here Jesus is on his way from Galilee, stops in a Samaritan city called Sychar. Many Jews did not travel this route because they were concerned that in dealing with the Samaritans, it would make them ceremonially unclean. So they would take an altogether different route around Samaria Cross over a river and come back around the other way, even though that that journey was much longer and harder. the Samaritans were were of a descent of a, of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile during the Assyrian exile of the northern kingdom. The Jews had intermarried with the Gentiles, which was a huge break from the Jewish faith. thus, the offspring of these of this marriage would be considered unclean. The Samaritans also occupied the land of the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And so, although they had not come back from exile yet, the Jews viewed the Samaritans as as squatters, dwelling in the land that did not belong to them, that belonged to their brothers and sisters from the other tribes. And so these Samaritans stood in the way of their brothers and sisters coming back to reclaim their land. So they're only seen it as an obstacle to God's promise for the Jews. Needless to say, the general relations between the, Jews and Gent- between the Jews and the Samaritans were hostile. To call a Jew a Samaritan would be an insult. The fact that the woman was at the well alone at the sixth hour was also significant. The sixth hour was the hottest point of the day. And so you never went to the well at the hottest point of the day. You went either in the morning or in the later in the afternoon when it was cooler. And so she, this woman either ran out of water, which may have been the case, but maybe not, or she was going there because she knew there would be no one else at the well at that time. So she's there alone. Not only did people not go to the well at midday when it's the hottest, but the, uh, the women would always go in groups. They'd never go alone. There's always groups of women who'd go to the well. So here, the, here she is, not with the other women, not in a group, by herself, the hottest point of the day, getting some water. Why would, why would she be doing this? In verse 18, we get a little picture. Jesus begins to dig into her life and begins to explain to her things that are going on in her life at that time. This woman had had five husbands and the man she was now with was not her husband so we can only assume that there was some amount of shame associated with this, with this woman. And here Jesus is speaking to her, breaking through those things. Not only that, but culturally, it was inappropriate to talk to a woman when her husband wasn't there. So Jesus is breaking the, the cultural stereotypes, talking to this woman. Not only that, but it was unclean for a Jew to drink out of a Samaritan even drinking vessel. It made him unclean. It was inappropriate. It was not right. So here this Jewish rabbi is drink is asking her for a drink. Nothing good can come out of this encounter. But yet, Jesus breaks through all the stereotypes, breaks through all the cultural barriers, and he speaks to this woman. And he gives her a hope of eternal life. He says there's eternal life with me. Okay, we're going to move from that picture. We're going to move now to the thief on the cross. So this is our second portrait of grace. And then we're going to go back and make some comments about each one of these. But turn with me to Luke 23. It's a really short passage we have. Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly For we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. The thief on the cross it's a small snapshot into the, the last day of this thief's life. The moment of his execution. We, get a, we just get a small glimpse into his life. Now what Luke doesn't include, but what Matthew and Mark include in their Gospels, is that in, they don't describe this scene necessarily, but what they do describe is the fact that Jesus was executed with robbers. And what they say about the robbers, and Matthew specifically says, they reviled Jesus. They said the robbers reviled Jesus along with everyone else around the cross. They were reviling Jesus. And something happened to this thief. At one point was reviling Christ in Matthew's gospel. But here in Luke, something had changed. Maybe he had seen Jesus not revile back. Maybe he had seen the way Jesus had spoken kindly and made um, arrangements for his mom to be cared for, Mary. Maybe it was the fact that Jesus loved other people, even at, the, even at his execution, even at the point of, of great suffering and great loss, praying for those who are executing him, loving other people, caring for his mom when everyone else was reviling him, something happened in that thief's heart. He saw Jesus. And he saw the kindness and the love of Jesus at that poem, at that moment in his life. Maybe moments from death. And as he makes confession of faith, asks for forgiveness from, from his words, just saying, You've done nothing wrong, and I have, and I deserve what I'm getting. Remember me. Jesus turns and utters the sweetest words he could ever have heard at that moment. So I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We think there's nothing that could have been uttered that would have been sweeter to this thief's ears at that moment. The last bit of life left. Jesus Christ reaches out and gives grace. All right, let's look at Luke 19. So that's the thief on the cross. We're going to move to picture number 3. Zacchaeus. Some of you are familiar with Zacchaeus. We sing a we sing a children's song about Zacchaeus. We we have the little flannel grams of Zacchaeus up in a tree and the kids love it and it's it's good times, but this is a great story. It's only a small picture and we're going to read Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered, this is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want to give you a little background on this tax collector, why people were grumbling Why Zacchaeus was considered a great sinner. The name Zacchaeus means righteous one. However, the people that knew him would not believe that he was ever living up to his name. He would what he would do and the way they would collect taxes at this time by the Romans would the Romans would would hire Jewish or they would hire out tax collectors, and the way they would do this is they would collect bids. So we would bid, someone would bid on the fact, they think I can collect this much taxes from the people. And so they would award the bid to the highest bidder. Zacchaeus would go out and collect taxes. And being in Jericho, which was a major, on a major trade route, this was a good place to be. And so he wouldn't make a salary from the government. What he would do is he'd have to collect extra taxes in order to keep the money for himself. That's how he got paid. So you can see the more money you collect, the more money you make. So it's in his best interest to defraud, do a little extra to to get himself some more money. And it says that he's a chief tax collector. So he probably had some underlings who worked for him that went out and also collected taxes. And it wasn't just that he was collecting taxes for the government. He was working for the Roman government. This was a pagan, idolatrous government who is forcibly collecting taxes against the people. And so you were you are looked at as a traitor. You're working for the wrong guys. You're on the wrong team. You're, you're taking money from your own people and giving it to a pagan, wicked government. Zacchaeus would not have, been affre- not have been looked upon well at all. This guy might as well have been LeBron James in Cleveland on the night of the decision. This is what it would have been like not welcome not loved nothing for him and that's why people were grumbling why would jesus go to eat with this guy this guy's a sinner he's working for a pagan hostile government who's oppressing us forcefully taking from us what's ours and you're working for him but he encountered grace he met jesus so let's make a couple points of observation about these, these three texts. So what does a despised Jewish traitor in a tree, a half-breed, unclean woman of loose morals at the well, and a condemned criminal at his execution have in common? Number one, grace came to them. Grace came to them. And a moral woman, dying criminal, traitor they did not understand what grace was who would have shown them grace who was it in their life that would have shown them grace titus 3 this is a i just love this passage titus 3 verses 3 through 7 this could almost be a commentary on this passage titus 3 3 through 7 says this for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When the Savior appears, in verse 4, in verse 5, he saved us. Verse 6, he pours out the Holy Spirit on us. All of this action is taken by God. We are the recipients of God acting upon us. These three people, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, the thief on the cross, were simply recipients of Jesus' grace that he extended to them. He, Jesus showed up. Jesus offers eternal life. Without any hope in the world, Jesus comes and offers grace. So number one, grace came to them. Number two, grace Grace shows up at the least likely time and places. In the, in the middle of a tree in the city, in the middle of the day at a well, in the middle of crosses at an execution, Jesus shows up. And sometimes we can limit God's work or God's speaking or God moving to a Bible study, a prayer meeting, a church service, and that's where God does his work. God does his work at these places at this time. If you want to encounter God, you've got to be here at 9:30. God will be here and you'll encounter God. We'll worship together. But what we see in this in the gospels is Jesus shows up whenever he wants, does what he wants when he wants, to who he wants. It's good news for us. The work of God's not limited to a meeting or our own designated prayer times. God absolutely works at, in those times and we we come with expectant hearts that we will hear from God when we come to church and go to a Bible study and have a prayer meeting. But he's not limited to what we think is appropriate time for God to show up. He does it as he pleases. In my own life, when I was in college, I went to a, um, a, a retreat with happened to be Michelle's, my wife's, college ministry from Knoxville, Tennessee. They went down to Panama City, Florida for a spring break. And I'm like, hey, that's cool. have a good time. There's a bunch of people going. I didn't know anybody. And there's like we're going to have some prayer meetings and that kind of stuff. I'm like, hey, that's great. You know, that's all good stuff. But on that spring break in Panama City, I encountered God on a balcony of a hotel overlooking the ocean. I got down. I remember just praying with some other guys in my room who I didn't know very well, but we were just praying with them. And, man, God met me at a balcony in Panama City, Florida. My life was never the same again. He radically confronted my sin. He radically turned me towards him again. He radically did something in me that was unexplainable, set my heart on fire for him. Gave me a love for his word and for his people and a desire for him that I never had before. I think, thank goodness God wasn't limited to a meeting. God broke through at Panama City, Florida. That's where I encountered God powerfully. The good thing is it's God who determines when and where grace will show up. God determines those things. So we can't limit God. Number three, grace cannot be earned or made up for. That's really the essence of grace. Even with Zacchaeus' determination to pay back the theft that he had committed was just a sign of the inward repentance. It wasn't payment for what God had offered to him wasn't like, well, God, thanks for eternal life. I'm going to give you some money or I'm going to pay back. It's not payment. I was thinking about this this week. If, if I came up to Matt and I said, Matt, you know what? I want to give you a brand new Escalade, fully loaded. This thing is just brand new. This thing is awesome. And Matt would come to me and say, you know what? That is such a generous gift, but let me pay you back. Let me, let me do a little something for you so that this, I, so, you know, helps me feel better. Kind of, you know, I want to bless you too. So I'm going to give you a nickel. And I'm, that's, that's what I got. That's what I can give to you. It would be an insult. It would be insulting to me. Like, what's the nickel for? What, what are you doing? In the same way, when we think after God has given us a relationship with himself, eternal life, given us a new heart. And we come and say, God, I'm going to do some stuff for you to pay you back. It's insulting to Him. Now, we do do good things because He's given us those things to do, but it's not in payment for the gift of eternal life. It's simply a way that we glorify Him. Simply a way that, that we express an appreciation and thankfulness to Him. And yet I do this. I do this. There's times in my life where Man, you know, I haven't read the Bible in a week, or maybe it's been a month. And I slept in to miss church last week. And as I was on the way out the door trying to make it to church on time, I I kicked a dog. And then I fought with my wife. And then I was yelling at my kids because they were yelling at each other. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to do some good stuff. I'm going to be at church 15 minutes early. And I'm going to pray and i'm going to read my bible at least 3 times this week for at least 15 minutes each time and then and then things will be okay again okay god we got a deal you know what it's a slap in the face to grace god's grace to us even in the midst even in the midst of our mess of our lives our sin and disobedience and anger And jealousy and lust and greed and all these things. God yet comes and offers us grace and mercy. God still loves us even in the midst of those things. That is the good news about grace. It cannot it cannot be earned. It cannot be paid back. That's grace. It's undeserved. It's given. I was thinking about this week, and I thought the saying where someone says, oh, yeah, you've looked through the, you, look through, you see the world with, like, rose, rose-colored glasses or something where it's just like you, you see things and you always see the good in people or you always see the good scenario even in the, in the bad things. When we trust in Christ for salvation, it's as if when God looks at us, he puts on Jesus-tinted glasses, and he sees Jesus because we're found in Jesus. When we, tr- when we repent of our sins, turn and trust in Christ for salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, when he looks at us, even in the midst of our sin and disobedience and rebellion against him, he says, I see Jesus' perfect obedience. I see Jesus' love for people. I see Jesus. And he looks, he looks at us with Jesus' tinted glasses. He does. And that's what's so amazing about grace. We don't deserve it. So what does that call us to do? Grace simply invites us, number four, to humbly receive it. All we can do is humbly receive it. To the woman at the well, Jesus offers water that bubbles up to eternal life and never runs out. To the thief on the cross, he welcomes him into paradise that very day. To Zacchaeus, he says, come down for today I will dine with you. Because we can't earn it, pay it back. All we can do is receive it. And really, it's it sum, it, it summed up for us when we see the mission of Jesus and what He came to do. One of the most concise things that He says is actually in Luke 19, verse 10. At the end of His encounter with Zacchaeus, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That sums up the mission of Christ. This is what Jesus came to do. And even when He was dying... On the cross, he was seeking and saving the lost. Even at his death, moments moments from his death, he's bringing people into the kingdom. And Jesus Christ now calls us as his disciples to go and do the same. We don't determine when grace shows up. We don't decide how it will show up. But we trust that Jesus Christ is still extending grace today. We ourselves are are living examples of that. I met a guy this week that I've known for a while, and Matt Simoni and myself were eating breakfast, and I see I see this guy, and I said, "Oh, hey, so and so, how you doing?" And he was a guy who, in my mind, I'd probably think this is the last guy who's ever going to come to church. He's He's far from God. This, is, this guy, is, he's, he's off the deep end when it comes to things of God. I mean, him coming to church would be like us being planted in some foreign country in the middle of, middle of nowhere. We wouldn't know how to communicate, wouldn't know what's going on around us. It just wouldn't make any sense. As I thought about that this week, it really struck me how man-centered that thinking is. When, when, when we're described in Ephesians 2, it says that we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. There isn't one person who is more dead than the other person. One person who is kind of dead says we're all dead. He says we're all a million miles from God. There isn't one person who is a little bit closer, a little bit farther. As we can see in these stories, Jesus shows up to the least likely people. If you would have went into the, the town of, of, of Jericho and you, li- you lined up 100 people and Zacchaeus was in there, You'd probably say he was the last guy to ever encounter Jesus and and joyfully give away all his stuff and and follow Christ. He would have been the last guy we would have all guessed for that to happen to. He was the chief tax collector. He was the, the sinner of sinners. But yet Jesus broke in into his life. I think what good news for us that this guy at the restaurant that I met There is hope for him. There is hope. There is hope for us. I think where we were before coming to Christ, whether we were really often doing some bad stuff or we were just kind of dabbling in some things, it says we were dead and unable to respond to God. And apart from God coming and initiating his grace to us, we never would have responded to God. We never would have chosen God. If we ever choose God, it's because He has taken hold of us first and has given us His grace. So I want to encourage us with that this morning. Think of the people in your life who think, oh, this person, there's no way they would ever come to know Christ. There's no way we'd ever see Him at church. And I want you to be reminded that the grace of God is bigger and more powerful than any sin let that also be an encouragement to us. Maybe you're sitting here today and it's been a while. You haven't been a church in a while. But yet the grace of God is available to us today because of Jesus Christ. It never stops, it never lets up, it is relentless. We don't limit it to where it, where it shows up or when it does, but all we can do is humbly receive it. So who can you extend grace to? Who can you extend grace to this week? Who can you extend grace to today? Who is it in your life do you think this person needs to encounter Jesus? As far off as we think they may be, Jesus is bigger. Jesus is more able. Jesus Jesus says, come to me, all who are thirsty. Like this woman, he says, I will give you Water. That bubbles up into eternal life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you've given us yourself, that you extend grace to us. Even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, you extend grace to us. And just like you met the thief at the cross and the woman at the well in the middle of the hot day and Zacchaeus up in a tree. God yet, you have met us. And what I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here today is now put their trust in you and ask you for forgiveness of their sins. Jesus, that you would extend your grace to them this morning. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for saving. Thank you for redeeming. Thank you that no sin is too great, that no sinner is too far. Lord, that your grace is never limited. So, Lord, we thank you for it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.